name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. This month on the Northern Logger podcast, we interviewed someone who the readers of our magazine should be very familiar with, and that's Mike Monty. Mike has been writing for the Northern Logger for just about a quarter of a century, and he used to be a logger himself up in Crandon, Wisconsin. So needless to say, he knows the industry in the Lake States very well, and he's also a great storyteller. So we were really happy to talk to him and hope that our listeners will enjoy this interview with Mike Monty. Also, before we get started, this month I will be out in Escanaba, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan at the Great Lakes Logging Expo from September 9th to 11th. And that expo is held at the Upper Peninsula State Fairgrounds. It's always a great time. And if you are a listener and you are from the Midwest, I hope you'll come find me and say hello. Also, don't forget about the Northeastern Loggers Association annual Loggers Expo in Bangor, Maine at the Cross Insurance Center. And that's this September 24th and 25th. That's our biggest show of the year. And it's a great time, and you can find out more about it by visiting our website, www.northernlogger.com. So now our interview with Mike Monty, logging journalist extraordinaire. Hi, I'm Mike Monty. I used to be a logger. I now publish a newspaper. And I do write about logging. I've been writing for Northern Logger for 25 plus years. I actually learned the industry. I grew up around it. I live in Northeast Wisconsin in a town called Crandon in a county called Forest that is 60% national forest and 20% state and tribal and county forests with the rest of us living on the other 19% of the land. So we're never too far from the woods. I was persuaded to write articles for Northern Logger by the former editor, Eric Johnson. And we had a good relationship. It actually started out with him doing a story about me when I was logging. And I used to work for other people. And I, my father had a garage. I grew up working on logging equipment as it was being developed in the 60s, early 60s, and went to college, worked summers in the woods. Weekends when I came home, I cut pulpwood. After college, I didn't want to work for a government agency, so I came back to the north woods of Wisconsin and started in logging for other people and eventually started my own logging operation with very, very little capital. I've had a job from the state of Wisconsin in a neighboring county that was offered to me, and they wanted it logged with horses. And before you know it, I had two horses and all the harnesses and hired some guys, and we cut that sale with horses. And um, it was an initial investment with the horses, the harness, and the barn, which was portable, and you could haul the horses in it, for $2,000. 
which later on was, was a monthly installment on a on a skitter that I had. <laughs> but uh, I worked for the horses pretty much for about three years. And what the horses did bring me was some very nice timber sales, not big ones, but privately owned ones, and people who did not want equipment in their woods. And a lot of things like uh, oak veneer, uh, white birch veneer, some red pine, private hardwood stands. People wanted them thinned and they didn't want a skitter in it. Worked good for about three years. But eventually, I had to I had to go to equipment. I ran out of out of timber stands that where people wanted horses. And when I sold the horses, it was terrible. It was like selling a family member. But things moved on. I had a couple of cable skitters, and we piled with the blade and got the butts even and cut them up. And we had people who were more than willing to haul it. And eventually I moved on to a tree farmer forwarder. In the 80s, in that bad recession we had, I ended up buying a local newspaper that had just been started. And I went from logging in the morning to being a newspaper man in the afternoon because I came to town to get fuel oil, stopped at the newspaper office, and I had been writing articles on logging problems because I was secretary of an organization called Lake States Independent Loggers Association. And our state legislators needed newspaper articles. And that's where I got them published. And um, I ended up owning the paper. And that was in November of 87. And I have been a reformed logger ever since. I do understand the industry and I understand the people doing it and why they do it and why they want to do it. And I still miss it, actually, at times. Well, so uh, I'm curious, you know, over the course of paying attention to and participating in the industry where you live, how have you seen it change um, over the past 25 years? Well, it's gone. You don't hear about chainsaws anymore. I guess there's one place in town where you can get a chainsaw fixed. There used to be two, and uh, I used to run steel chainsaws all the time. And a guy named Lee Van Cleve was also a logger, but he worked on saws in the evening. And um, actually, that was a kind of a social outlet, too. All the guys that were in there to get their saws fixed had big BS sessions going in the evenings. and. Uh, that's gone. Um, there's more harvesters now. And of course, the first forwarders were iron mules. And Emil Gaffner over in Escanaba, about 100 miles east of us, invented these things. And I had the, the fun of working on them in dad's garage. And they were actually a farm tractor that was turned into a four-wheel drive forwarder. And while a lot of people criticized him, he was the first that I know of to do that. And eventually other companies like Tree Farmer and 
then other ones started making forwarders too. And usually they were two to two and a half cord machines. And of course the difference now is they're coming out with six cords, which is about what the trucks were hauling when I was a young kid. Because people still had single axle trucks or even just tandems with an old furnace string loader on it, you know, with a cable. Eventually, you saw the trucks turn into tandem trucks with a pup, and then tandem trucks with a tag axle and a pup, and then a pup with three axles. And like Emil Gaffner, the Leo Heikinen over in the town of Prentice invented the Prentice loader. And the first ones were a takeoff on the old winch loaders where you stood on the ground and pulled a rope after you wrapped a chain around a bundle of pulp. Well, he put a bucket on them and put an operator up in the seat. And, and eventually I watched that change to um, knuckle booms and people who could run string jammers. Oh, they had a terrible time switching because they were used to stopping the main boom and the cable would swing and the, and the bunch of pulp went over where they wanted it, they'd drop it. When they stopped the swing on, a, on the knuckle boom, it stopped. The wood didn't keep going. So it was kind of fun to watch some of those guys, but they all caught on and got used to running it. And, um, you don't see anybody hardly ever hauling now without a, a pup trailer behind the truck. I guess the other thing that I saw change with trucking was I actually grew up in a little town north of Crandon called Argonne, and it, the Sioux Line Railroad ran through there, and people were loading pulpwood on gondola cars all the time, every day, weekends, sometimes at night. And, of course, Argonne butts right up to a big chunk of National Forest there. And there were a lot of timber sales at that time in the National Forest. So the trucking switch to bigger trucks and passing up the railroad and going directly to the mill. And uh, that's pretty much the way it happens now. In fact, the Sioux line doesn't even go through Argonne anymore. So we have no train service to this county. But people routinely drive 110 miles to Wisconsin Rapids or 120 miles down to the Fox Valley to Tillman or wherever they're going to the mill. Um, it used to be almost everything went on rail cars. Um, usually about 20 cords unless it was a long gondola, then it held 25 maybe. And then they hoped that the wood didn't fall off the gondola on the way to the to the mill, and the pay process was a lot slower than the trucks. And more and more people I watched through the years that got equipped with not only the truck and the pup, but then they added a semi, which they loaded with the loader truck. And so it's changed tremendously, and it's good and it's bad. There used to be many, many more people in our county and adjoining counties that made a living logging, cutting pulpwood with a chainsaw and logs. You don't have that anymore. You've got 
the processor does what several men would do and does a better job actually as far as the skidder operator is concerned so i've seen all that i guess it's for the best i think the other thing that i noticed that is not for the best is how the shortage of fault mills since the days i started logging we have far fewer pulp and paper mills in the state of Wisconsin than we did when I was younger. So the markets are, even though some of the existing ones use more wood than they used to, there still it probably isn't the market. So I guess, what has it been like writing about all of this, making the transition from actually working in it to then being a reporter? Well, I think I know the language, especially if I'm dealing with an older guy who has some of the same memory I do. If I can speak the language, I think the people I'm interviewing, uh, they seem to develop a trust and they relax. And at first they might be nervous because they're being interviewed by a guy from a magazine, you know, not realizing I was, I was the same kind of guy as them. And I usually, I usually try to explain that I used to log. That always helps. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it's not that easy if you're not in the industry necessarily to talk to people about what they do. Yes, and you ha- I certainly have an understanding of it. I Even before I grew up with it, my father's repair shop, we had loggers in there all the time getting things fixed. Actually, the first stuff that was skidded with a loader, Emil Gaffner had invented a, a little loader that fastened to the back of a crawler tractor. And people either pulled a dray or a little two wheel trailer that held about a quart of wood and put wood on, you know, skidded the wood with those. And what they did was they eliminated another guy because when it was done by hand, usually there was a guy with a fin hook on each end of the pulp stick and they threw it on the dray either with a horse or behind a crawler, and took it to the road and unloaded it by hand. They were very neat piles when they were piled by hand, but um, eventually Emil came up with the loader on the back of the crawler, and that led to the iron mule, the four-wheel drive converted farm tractor. Everything has taken off from there. I think I remember two of the first invented the shears and I never worked with them but I know they had trouble with wood splintering from those before they put a saw on a on a harvester and the first guys that did it would lay the tree down and then guys came along with chainsaws and and cut it up in the woods and then the forwarder came and took it to the road I think it's people who are doing this can do it a lot longer if they want to work well past retirement they can do it physically much better most people who log like being in the woods and they can keep on doing it for a long long time providing we still have markets yeah that makes sense to me so do you have uh like a you know, maybe not a favorite story, but a story that you've reported that you particularly remember doing and liking to do? 
I was thinking about this earlier in the day. It wasn't the first story I did for Northern Lager, but one of the early ones. There was a proposed pulp mill about 100 miles north of us at Lance, Michigan. It would have been on the Pigeon River, which flowed into Keweenaw Bay. And I don't remember which company was interested in putting the mill in, but there was a lot of local opposition. And there was a group called Friends of the Lands of Keweenaw, because that's in the Keweenaw Peninsula and Keweenaw Bay. And surprisingly, there were loggers that joined the environmental group that did not want a pulp mill put there because they were worried about the water quality. And I wrote a story on that for Eric in the early 90s, I believe it was. And um, it was much longer than he wanted, but he ended up publishing it anyway because it told the story. It was very interesting to see uh, loggers, and I interviewed some of them who joined an environmental group to oppose a pulp mill. Right. It's not a, that's not a story that you hear a lot. No, and it, it was, of course, there was some lovely timber up there, and usually the pulp wood was left in the woods because there wasn't a market. So they were cutting logs and box bolts, you know, eight to 10 inch bolts plus quality logs. And they didn't really care if they cut pulpwood or not. And the company did withdraw. The mill never went in. And they had a, actually, they had a uh, referendum on it. And it came up about 50-50. And the pulp mill, the people at the pulp mill decided that wasn't enough local support to do it. And they backed up. So I thought that was that was one of the more interesting ones I've been in. It's always nice to write about somebody who's had a quite a bit of experience with various types of logging and been through the some rough times and some good times. And yeah, sawmills are the same situation. Somebody started, you know, you write a story about somebody who started with a bare bones outfit and they now have a, a good modern uh, sawmill with all the peeling and chipping equipment to, to make it completely profitable and and they're they're doing well. And they like to talk about how they started with bare bones next to nothing. I think those make interesting stories. Um, I enjoy being around people like that. And then like any industry, there's always, there's a few times you do a story and there's somebody's a little bit uh, full of themselves. Usually that's not the case, however. Most loggers are pretty down to earth. You know, I mean, something that I think is good about having been writing about the industry for so long is that sometimes it's hard to go to a logging job and see what people are doing differently 
because to them it's like, oh, we always did it this way. But when you see all the different ways that people work, you can say, oh, you know, you're really like approaching this in a different way in terms of efficiency or how you're using the equipment or whatever it is. I think loggers, and I I observed this when I was a logger, you weren't considered uh, one of the stalwart people of the community. There were a number of people who thought that you were doing it because you were too dumb to do anything else with no idea what it took to be a good, successful logger, the various skills you needed, not only in getting the wood harvested, but dealing with government agencies, uh, employee problems, uh, and marketing the wood. And the last thing I just said, marketing the wood, is one of the things that has made some loggers more successful than others because they can get into that corporate frame of mind and end up with bigger pulpwood contracts than other guys who are perfectly good loggers but kind of freeze up when they're talking with somebody in the corporate office. You you know what I'm saying there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Marketing is a very essential part of being a good logger. Now there are other there are loggers out there, of course, who who work for a bigger company or a land company, and they don't have to worry about the marketing. Somebody else does. They usually don't always have the same profit margin either. But um, it, however, it is you have to learn to deal with the people who are getting the end product. Just like any other business, if you're buying or selling, you have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know how to talk to them. You have to make sense and you have to be efficient. And that, especially in the logging operation, efficiency is one of the keys I found to coming out with any money left over in the end. Right. I mean, it's hard to figure out if you're making money sometimes. Yeah, one of the things that that helped was when you weren't going hauling wood to a to a rail yard, for example. Let's say you were 15 miles from a railhead. Well, using the numbers from when I was logging, it might cost you 10 or 12 dollars a cord to get that wood put on a rail car. Now, for example, oh, early on in my logging days, you got a whole 35 bucks a cord on the rail car. Now you took $12 off to get it there. So now you're down to 23. You might have three to $5 stumpage. So when you started going direct to the mill and you had a forwarder, a lot of the skidding I did, I skidded right to a semi-trailer that my trucker left in the woods for me. So now I got $35 on the trailer instead of I was working for, I was cutting and skidding. Maybe I had to skid a little further to get to the trailer, but I was getting $35 a cord for that hardwood pulp versus 23 if somebody took it to a railhead. So 
that was a huge help for making a profit. And it was a, one of those efficiencies that um, people developed in the industry. I guess maybe you could talk about, you know, what you're seeing right now just this summer. Well, we've had quite a bit of rain, so there's water fighting mud. The biggest thing that happened in the lake states, in Wisconsin especially, but it also affects some of the upper peninsula of Michigan, is the the big mill going under the Brusso has in Wisconsin Rapids. It used to be consolidated paper a couple of owners ago. Um, It's a pretty big chunk of the pulpwood market, especially the hardwood pulp market. And um, that that hurts quite a few people. And you add that in with the pulp mills that we've lost well, in the last 20 years or 25 years, we've lost a number of them. It's a diminishing market, which makes it, of course, somewhat hard to do a good job of, of um, selective logging and um, sustainable logging if you can't sell enough wood. So I'd say that's probably the biggest problem that Lake State's loggers here in this area are facing is that loss of market. Right, and it doesn't help the, the forestry. Well, you can, if you're, let's say the Forest Service and they mark timber sales, and nobody buys them, that doesn't do a lot for sustainable forestry or forest stand improvement either. It has to be logged for that to happen. So I'm glad I did it. Most of the time I'm glad I'm not doing it. The newspaper business has also been interesting, but I keep my hand in by writing these stories. And I do, I do enjoy it. Well, we're happy to we're happy that you enjoy it because <laughs> I know that our readers really appreciate your, you know, being our Midwestern correspondent. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. Hey, thanks for listening to the Northern Logger podcast. And just as a reminder, we hope to see you in Bangor, Maine, this September 24th and 25th at the Cross Insurance Center. Uh, We're going to have a great loggers expo and see you there.